Let's pray together. Father, would you speak to us now and convince us of your glory and of the trustworthiness of your promise. And Lord, would you make us those who, who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord. We need you. And we cast ourselves at your feet praying that you would show us great things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. My friend Brian Payne recently told this story that I want to share with you. He said that he was down in the, the Caribbean islands doing ministry with Jeremy Pierre, one of, one of our mutual friends. And he and Dr. Pierre, he said every day they were down there, they worked out together. And on one particular day, they forgot to take water to the workout, and it was very hot, and uh, they were very thirsty. And Brian Payne, who played football at the University of Alabama, began to share with Dr. Pierre of how this experience of, of dehydration and thirst reminded him of lower gym workouts at, at Alabama in the offseason. Uh, what, the, what the football team would do uh, the coaches would take the team down into this lower gymnasium below the Coliseum floor where the basketball team played, and for 60 minutes, uh, they would crank up the heat, and they would put these guys through the hardest workouts any of them had ever experienced. And they, they had to lock the doors of the lower gym because linemen had tried to escape, and they had to position trash cans in the corners of the room for what would inevitably happen to these men as they were worked in this way. And, um, and then after that 60 minutes in lower gym, um, uh, the coaches would then take them up into the Coliseum and they would either run laps around the arena or they would run stadium stairs. And Brian said that in those days, um, you know, the science and the technology wasn't what it was today, and so the coaches didn't realize that it was a good thing to drink water during workouts. And so the, the, the young men were forbidden to, to drink during the 60 minutes in lower gym with the heat cranked up and the coaches just pouring it on. And even though there was a water fountain between lower gym and the Coliseum, they were forbidden to stop at that water fountain. And... Uh, Brian said that, that uh, there was a gentleman's agreement among the players that if you stopped and got a drink, nobody was going to tell on you. But if you got caught, it was your responsibility. And the coach's policy was, if you got caught drinking water between Lower Gym and the Coliseum, you had to go back down for another 60 minutes in Lower Gym. And Jeremy Pierre said to Brian Payne, what motivates an 18, 19, 20-year-old young man to go through that. And, and I love Brian Payne. He, he grew up in Alabama. He's one of the most intense people I know. He loves Alabama football. And he got this look on his face like this is one of the things that means most to me in all of life. And he said, I said to Dr. Pierre, the promise of putting on that crimson jersey in the fall. That's what motivates it. And I tell you that story because there is a greater glory than a packed stadium with a roaring crowd 
There is something more significant awaiting us than going to your hometown and being the hero to all the little boys and to all the old men who know what you're doing up there at Tuscaloosa. There is a greater glory than a championship that the University of Alabama might win. And when you think about what those men were going through, what they're saying is something like this. We are living for the glory that we are going to attain on the gridiron in the fall. And you look at all the things they're sacrificing. They're, they're, they're not out partying with their friends. They're not at home eating potato chips. They're not taking it easy on the couch watching television. These guys are making great sacrifices, exercising great discipline, and they're saying, yeah, all that stuff is good, but we're living for something better. And by their whole lives, what they're doing is praising Alabama football. I would invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 92, and we'll look this morning at Psalms 92 and 93. And the assertion that the psalmist makes in Psalm 92 verse 1 is an assertion that's informed by the wider context, but it's more particularly informed by the things I've just been talking about. When the psalmist says here, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. What he's saying is, it's good for me to accept what God has given to me right here, right now. What he's saying is, even though I don't understand all of the implications of, of the context of Psalm 89. So in Psalm 89, uh, the, the, the king from the line of David has been removed from his throne. The crown lies in the dust. The walls of the city are breached. The, the promises look like they're not coming to pass. And the psalmist is saying, in spite of what I see, in spite of the way that I don't understand God's purposes, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Um, the psalmist is saying, I may not have everything that I want. My circumstances might not be what I want them to be. Powerful temptations may be luring me from God, but it's good to give thanks and to sing praise. And what he's doing is the, is the opposite of what's stated over in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 4. Listen to these words in Proverbs 28, verse 4. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked. Those who, those who say, I'm not going to live by the Torah anymore. I'm not going to live by the scriptures anymore. What they're doing is they're saying the wicked have the right idea. The wicked have all the fun. The that's the way to go. That's the way to live. That's the path to joy. That's what they're saying. And the psalmist, it's like he's doing the opposite of that. He's saying, no, no. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Do you hear what he's doing there? Morning. Steadfast love, chesed. By night, faithfulness, truth. Do you hear what's driving him? Your character, Lord. Your character is what's holding me, morning and evening. Your love, your truth, your faithfulness, that's what keeps me singing praises, 
even though my circumstances aren't what I want them to be, even though I don't have the things I long to have, even though the temptations lure me into other pleasures, your character, your love, your truth, keep me praising you. And then verse 3, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. You know, when the Lord, when the Lord does this for us, he's, when, when he makes it so that we feel this, and, and I recognize that you're not always going to feel this. You're not always going to feel this. You're going to see things that you want. You're going to see things that look like that is more pleasing than what God offers to me. And what you need is for the truth of these statements to ring true in your heart. And, and John Owen asked the question, how does the Spirit mortify sin? How does the Holy Spirit in our hearts put sin to death, put temptation to death? And this is his answer. By causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh. By causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh. Fruits like thanksgiving, praises to the Lord. We want to abound in these things and thereby mortify the flesh. The psalmist is going to transition from praise to God in verses 1 through 3 to something else. I'm going to read you these, two, these next two verses, verses 4 and 5. I did this with my kids last night. I said, we're, we're going to, you're going to listen to what you're going to hear in verses 1 through 3. And we got through verses 1 through 3, and they said, it's all about praise to God. I said, all right, now listen to the next two verses, and you tell me the word that occurs three times. Listen to verses 4 and 5. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. You heard it, right? He's focusing on God's works. What he's doing, what he's doing is he's saying, God, the things that you do make me happy. We praise what impresses us. This is why we like to watch sports. This is why we like to go to uh, vacation spots where there are impressive features of nature or impressive architectural accomplishments. We are, what we are impressed by is a reflection of what we think about and what our standards are. What impresses us reveals where our hearts are. And the psalmist, he's praising God and then he's celebrating God's works. You will praise those, those things that you um, are, are satisfied by, and then as you indulge those satisfactions, you will continue to praise what you indulge in. And this can go in a good direction or a bad direction. If, if you indulge yourself in the things that tempt you, your heart will begin to celebrate those things. It, it will be instinctive. You'll become a worshiper, an idolater. I love Ruffles, Ruffles potato chips. And I love uh, the Velveeta cheese dip, you know, that you put Rotel in and you melt that cheese. My wife thinks that that stuff is disgusting. She says that's not even cheese, it's American cheese product. 
My delight praises the product, doesn't it? What we want to do is we want to cultivate, we want to cultivate hearts that are impressed with the works of God. And the reality is that the more we look at what God has done, the more we contemplate what God has done, the more these things will impress us. This is the way it works with all kinds of things. If you sit and stare at a radio and then start taking that thing apart, you'll begin to be impressed by the genius of the man who created that radio and all the things that go into making that thing work. It's the same thing with the truths of Scripture. You sit and stare at this thing, you start to take it apart, you'll get more and more into how this works and you'll be more and more impressed with the Lord. So, so point of application, what are you thinking about? What are you giving your heart to? What are you putting before your eyes? We praise what we love. Now, the psalmist in verses 1 through 3 has talked about uh, praising the Lord, and then verses 4 and 5, he's really talked about what prompts him to praise the Lord, right? Contemplation of God's works. And now he's going to contrast that with people who don't praise God. And, and what he's going to say in verses 6 through 9 here is a lot like that statement in Psalm 1 where you've got this blessed man who's meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. And, and so everything that he does prospers. And then the psalmist says, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Look at Psalm 92 verse 6. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. You know, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking something like this, what's he talking about God's works for? I don't see what's impressive about this God. I don't see why I should have a heart of praise to God. So many more things in my life are so much more satisfying than coming to church and singing God's praise and trying to sit down and read that old dusty book. Well, no offense, but according to the Bible, you're stupid. That's what it says right there. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. If that's how you feel, you should be terrified. If you feel that way, you should begin right now to cry out to the Lord to change you, to make it where that stuff that tempts you is not as attractive to you as the Bible. And let's be honest. Let's be honest. The delights of the eyes, the, the desires of the flesh, they are often a lot more seductive than a white page with black letters on it. And, and we want hearts that resist that seduction. We want hearts that have so cultivated a knowledge of God's works that we're not stupid and can't know and foolish and can't understand. And then look at the way he goes on to describe these guys here in verse 7. They can't understand that though the wicked sprout like grass. So the wicked, what's happening to the wicked is what's happening maybe to your lawn right now. As the weather warms and the rains fall and what looks like this vibrant growth begins to scream up, spring up and sprout. But we all know that August is coming, right? If you've lived in Louisville for a little while, you know that, that March, April, May, man, the lawns are so impossibly green. But just wait till late July. 
If you don't have a sprinkler system in your lawn, late July, you're going to have nothing but weeds left out there. That's what's being described right here. Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish. You see what the fool, the stupid person is looking at? The stupid person is saying, look how satisfied those people are by their sin. Look how successful those people seem to be by cheating. And all they see is the immediate, short-term joy that these people seem to have. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, the stupid and fool don't understand they are doomed to destruction forever. These people, they see the immediate result, the initial success. They don't consider the ultimate outcome. It's like somebody, some fool down in Alabama thinking to himself, you know, these potato chips and this soda pop and this television, this is going to give me a lot more glory and a lot more joy than practicing with the Alabama football team. He's a fool. He's stupid. He doesn't understand what it's going to be like to enter that stadium with that crowd going wild. And what I'm saying to you is that every time we give way to temptation, we are fools. We don't understand what it's going to be like when there's something greater than that stadium and there's something more significant than that crowd and there's a glory and a heroism that's going to be celebrated that is infinitely beyond anything you can imagine from American football. I mean, it's just, there is no comparison with the glory that is to be revealed. It may seem that sin is the path to joy, that evil people have all the fun, but the psalmist is saying that those who draw this conclusion have so failed to know and understand that they have become brutish and stupid that grass, that grass that sprouted so green is going to be scorched. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Look at verse 8. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. They are doomed, verse 7, to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. Why does he put these two things together? Because when the wicked go their way, you know what they're saying? God's not going to punish me. God's got this statement in the Bible, you shall not commit adultery. He's not going to punish me. I'm going to get away with it. God's got this thing in the Bible, you shall not steal. God's not going to punish me. I'm go I've gotten away with it to this point. Look how successful I am. Look how satisfied I am. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. And then the psalmist says in verse 9, For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. This is just like Psalms 1 and 2, isn't it? Psalm 2, be wise, O kings, lest you perish in the way. Kiss the sun. Same terminology. All evildoers, he says there in verse 9, shall be scattered. The wind of God's judgment is going to come like fire. And the wicked will be scattered before him. That's the middle section of this psalm, Psalms, Psalm 92, verses 6 through 9. This focus on the wicked who are like chaff before the wind. Now, we've seen that in verses 1 through 3, we had praise being offered to God. And then we saw in verses 4 and 5, this celebration of God's works. Before we leave 
the wicked. I, I want to I say some more, make some more comments about the nature of temptation. There's a guy named um, Ed Welch who wrote a book called Addictions. And the subtitle of this book is A Banquet in the Grave. What he's getting at with that subtitle is, this is his definition of, of addictions. He says that addictions are um, those things that hold us in bondage to the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind, which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement from God. So a substance, uh, an activity, or a state of mind, and even if you get caught, and even if you suffer from this thing, it doesn't lead you to repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is where you stop making excuses and you stop blaming other people and you stop thinking, it wasn't that bad that I did that. Repentance is where you say, that was evil. That was evil and the reason it was evil is because God's law commands me not to do that. And I chose to do it. And I was wrong. And I want to do everything in my power to stop doing that. I never want to do that again. I'm going to turn away and I'm going to close off access to this thing in my life. That's what repentance looks like. If you're not acknowledging it was evil, it was wrong because it broke God's law. And if you're not turning away from it, you're not repenting. You're enslaved. And then Ed Welch talks about how those who indulge in these addictions, what happens is they become people who are like an animal eating meat. And this animal thinks that he's found a treasure trove. And he doesn't realize that this meat is stationed on a trap. And that thing is about to slam shut on them. That's where you are. If you're indulging in some wicked sin and you feel addicted to it and, and, and you go back, it's a... It's a trap. That meat is not going to satisfy. That meat is not going to sustain your life. That trap is about to spring on you. And the nature of the trap, I think, is, is uh, hinted at in verses 10 and 11. So I'm going to read verses 10 and 11, and you think about the language used here, and as you process this in your mind, we'll come back and we'll consider it together. Verses 10 and 11. Somebody, some individual says... You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Uh, we read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, as our call to worship, where, it's, where Hannah said that the Lord had given strength to his king and exalted the horn of his anointed. And we've talked about what horns mean. This is like, you know, you got a herd of, of rams or something, and you got one ram who's got the biggest horns and the strongest neck, and what he's going to do is establish himself as the alpha male in the herd by so butting up against the other rams that eventually they get to a place where they're ready to bow. This, this ram shows up and he lifts his head, he exalts his horn, and all the other males in the herd bow to this guy. 
And some individual here is saying, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. If you're familiar with the Balaam oracles in Numbers 23 and 24, this language might sound familiar to you. Because in the Balaam oracles, um, Balaam says of the people of Israel, he says the shout of a king is among them. And then he goes on to say that Yahweh, the Lord, is for them like the horns of the wild ox. What Balaam is saying is Yahweh is Israel's champion. Yahweh is the one who fights Israel's battles. That's what Balaam is saying. This guy is saying to the Lord, you've made me what you are to your people. You have made me your people's champion. You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. And then who is this? You have poured over me fresh oil. Well, that's Israel's anointed king, isn't it? The king of Israel is going to have his horn exalted by the Lord himself. This, again, is reinforcing the message of Psalm 2, where the wicked are warned, be wise, lest you kiss the son, lest he become angry. He's coming for judgment. His wrath flares up quickly. The Lord Jesus, this is talking about the future king from David's line who is going to come, and he's going to bring about what he describes in verse 11, the downfall of his enemies. The ears, he says, my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Do you know what you're saying if you go on in unrepentant sin? What you're saying if you continue in unrepentant sin, if you, if you continue to refuse to acknowledge, I was in the wrong, I transgressed God's law, my only hope is to obey the word of, in Psalm 2 and kiss the Son, which, by the way, means what you're saying is Jesus is going to be my King. Jesus is going to be my Lord. And what I want to do is is surrender to that coming conqueror. And and I want to yield to him. What you're saying is, I think I can overcome him. If you continue in unrepentant sin, what you're saying is either, I think I can stand against him, or he's not coming. That's what you're saying. I don't believe he's coming. I don't believe Psalm 2. I don't believe he's coming to judge. That's what you're declaring. That's what your whole life is shouting. If you say... I'm not putting covenant eyes on my computer. I'm not locking down my phone so that I can't access things I shouldn't access. Or I'm not turning away from pilfering this stuff at work. Or I'm not about to acknowledge that that relationship that I was in was sinful. I'm not repenting of those sins. I don't even think those were sins. What you're saying is he's not coming to judge. Or if he comes to judge, I'll be able to stand against him. And the psalmist is testifying You are wrong on both points. He is coming, and no one is going to stand against him. That's what the psalmist is declaring. And now he he circles back. Uh, Oh, let me say one more word about how verses 10 and 11 function. Um, Verses 4 and 5, this focus on God's works. Verses 10 and 11, it's like they say, here are the works we're talking about. We're talking about the works of God's exaltation of his anointed And we're talking about the works of God God bringing the anointed to crush everybody that's in rebellion against him. And now this final section of the psalm, verses 12 through 15, are going to match verses 1 through 3. Here's what the praise looks like. This ought to sound like Psalm 1 to you. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The palm tree is giving off this this uh, glorious, luxuriant fruit. 
The cedar in Lebanon is this tall, stately cedar that was used in the construction of the temple. And then the psalmist continues in verse 13. They are planted, the righteous, are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So it's like a tree planted in the temple courts, flourishing in the the very dwelling place of God. And we've talked about how the temple is really a symbol of what God made the world to be. And so really what the psalmist is saying here is in the, in the same way that one of those athletes who, who trains in that way, his, his uh, heart rate is going to be the heart rate of an athlete. His body fat is going is to fall. His, his muscle mass is going to increase. He's going to feel strong and healthy. All that work is going to pay off. And the psalmist is saying... You're going to flourish if you live for the Lord. You you don't deaden yourself with sin. You live for God. You're going to flourish like a palm tree, like a cedar planted in the courts of the Lord. Verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. You know, as, as people walk with God, as people walk with God, if they persist in daily the daily discipline of prayer. These people, they keep a list of things they're praying for. They pray for these things on a regular basis. What happens is they cultivate a heart of love that just extends in these ever-widening circles out from them. And they develop this confidence that when I go to the Lord in prayer, I've seen Him answer so many prayers And then from their diligent, lifelong study of the Scriptures, they just deepen and deepen in wisdom. And and they get this crown of old age, of white hair. And and they become these people who are consulted by everyone around them. They still bear fruit in old age. This is exactly what uh, Psalm 1 described when it, it talked about the blessed man whose leaf does not wither. Their bodies are dying, but their spirits are soaring. In old age, verse 15, they bear fruit to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. You know, there's a difference. I started reading this book last night called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission. And this guy's distinguishing between proclaiming the gospel, which is something that you do with your lips, and promoting the gospel. And, and what he means by promoting the gospel is this way of life that testifies that God is better. God is better than anything else you've experienced. When these powerful temptations confront us, we're tempted to believe there's nothing better than sin, nothing more satisfying than selfish indulgence, nothing more to be desired than what tempts us. But this psalm is testifying to us. That to praise God with our whole lives, to sing praises to Him and give thanks to Him, is to say, there's nothing better for me than God's will. There's nothing more satisfying than living as He has commanded. I would encourage you to take stock of your heart and just ask yourself, do I believe that? Do I believe that the most satisfying way to live is the way that God has commanded people to live in the Scriptures? To praise God with your whole life is to say, there is nothing more to be desired 
than what God has promised. And what we need to do is we need to become people who know those promises so that we can remind ourselves of them. Remind ourselves of of these glorious realities that await us. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. So that's Psalm 92. And I think in many ways, Psalm 93, this brief psalm, just five verses, is like a response to it. It's almost like the psalmist is saying, okay, I've been talking about singing praises there in 92.1, and I've been talking about declaring that the Lord is upright there in verse 15 of, of Psalm 92. Now let me show you what that looks like. Psalm 93 verse 1, Yahweh reigns, the Lord reigns. It's like the psalmist is saying, hey, look, I know there's no king on David's throne, right? I know that it looks like the wicked are getting away with it. And I know you're tempted to think that you can overcome the coming king or that perhaps he's not coming at all. But let me tell you the truth. Yahweh reigns. He is in control. He's on his throne. And everything that he intends to happen is coming to pass. The Lord reigns. And not only that, he's robed in majesty. There there is this glorious, resplendent, fullness of beauty with which he is clothed. And and he repeats himself. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. There's no overcoming him. And then he moves from the Lord in in his being and what he's doing to what the Lord has done in creation. There in verse one, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. There's nobody that's back before God began. He's he's from eternity past. And then he switches from the established world and God's established throne there in verse 2 to the waters in verse 3. It's like he's surveying creation. And he says in verse 3, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Now, this communicates several things because we all know what happened at the flood, don't we? God's wrath was visited. So this is testimony to the fact that God reigns. This is testimony to the fact that, yeah, the wicked, the wicked they may look like they're sprouting, but the flood waters of wrath are coming. And mightier than those waters, look at verse 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. This is a crushing weight of water. Stronger than all of that. More majestic than the heaving of the mighty ocean. The psalmist is saying, verse 4, The Lord on high is mighty. Do Do you hear and see what he's doing? He's looking at creation and he's praising God. He's celebrating the Lord's greatness from this response to the established world and the mighty waters. And that all prompts him to come back to the Bible. Verse 5, your decrees are very trustworthy. You could translate that word decrees, testimonies. Your testimonies are very trustworthy. What he's saying is, God, when you testify to something... When you decree something, you keep your word, and what you decree comes to pass. We can trust you. 
We can believe you. That's what he's saying. Your decrees are very trustworthy. And thus, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Why is holiness fitting? Holiness is fitting because it, it, it corresponds to who God is. And holiness declares God's going to keep his word. God is going to reward those who make sacrifices by resisting temptation. God is going to punish those who declare he's not going to judge them or that his ways are not good. Holiness is going to adorn and beautify the Lord's house. And again, the Lord's house, we can, we can say this ultimately points to the whole world because the house of God, the temple, was a symbol of the, of the universe that God created. Holiness befits your, your, your creation. Holiness befits everything you've made. Psalm 93 models the praise of God referenced in Psalm 92. It celebrates God's impervious throne. There's nobody going to knock the Lord off the throne. It celebrates God's ineluctable will. Everything that He wants will come to pass. There's no one going to thwart Him. It celebrates, therefore, God's inexorable purposes, which are firmly fixed. By His almighty power, He has established the world and His throne. By His awesome glory, He shows Himself mightier than the many waters. And by keeping His word, He assures us of His trustworthy character. Holiness is beautiful, and God is going to fill the cosmic temple with it. Let's pray. Father, you know we need this testimony. I pray that you would use it to bring people to their knees before you. People, perhaps, Lord, who have not acknowledged that the way that they have lived was wicked and wrong and owned the fact that they're responsible for their choices. Lord, cause them to say, in a way perhaps they've never said before, I repent. And Lord, convince them that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you save those who are crushed in spirit, that though your almighty wrath is terrifying and forces people to their knees, your steadfast love is as consoling as your wrath is terrifying. Lord, cause them to sense your love and make them feel that they've never been loved by like this before. And Lord, for those of us who have experienced your mercy, those of us who have placed our hope in the coming King, make us as resolute to live for your promises as a little boy growing up in Alabama hoping to play for the Crimson Tide. Make us those who are ready to sacrifice, ready to endure discipline, ready to persevere, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, that we might join the celebration when the King comes, and that we might be servants useful to Him. Lord, convince us of the overwhelming glory that awaits us, we ask in Christ's name.
Amen.